From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As we welcome in a new decade, signs are pointing up all around for Florida, with football sending out 2019 in style in a splashy Orange Bowl victory over Virginia, and basketball ringing in 2020 with an unblemished conference mark thanks to a record-breaking comeback against Alabama. On today's show, head coach Mike White stops by to discuss their hot start in the SEC, how they've grown while trying to manage sky-high expectations, the development of the newcomers, and more. Then, we'll bring in FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry for our first round table of the year to discuss the victory lap in Miami, season superlatives for Dan Mullen's squad, players coming and going in 2020, basketball's resurgence, Andrew Nemhard's ascension, and the possible end of the Patriots' dynasty in the PAT. But first, like an insect under a microscope, Mike White's team has been subjected to intense scrutiny since preseason expectations declared them a Final Four contender, even though most of their highly touted newcomers had never stepped on a college court. And while they haven't played that level yet, they found a way to scrape out victories in their first two conference games, including storing back from 21 to down Alabama in double overtime. So to open our conversation, we asked Coach White what differences he's seen in his team since the start of the decade. A, a rejuvenated uh, level of energy, you know, just with the start of SEC play, new beginnings, clean slate. Uh, and I think probably most importantly, the biggest factors have just been individual performances, I think. Uh, Andrew Nemhard has been really good. Keontae Johnson continues to develop. K.J. Blackshear's teammates are, are learning how to utilize him uh, and play with him uh, more efficiently. And Scotty Lewis is continuing to improve as well. With the the comeback against Alabama kind of serving as the catalyst, what does that do for you emotionally? Because you know you're down twenty at home. This is not the way you want to start SEC, and then you have this avalanche that leads you up over the top in double overtime. I know there's there's a lot of emotional juice that comes from that, but what kind of confidence does that kind of generate as well? Well, I mean, you said it. I, I, the word confidence comes to mind and, and I've been asked that a bunch. I think it's pretty simple, you know, that we've got a game now where we can draw upon throughout the rest of this year and even moving forward in years to come with, with these guys as they develop in their careers. They've been a part of um, an incredible steep uh, hill to climb and got it done. Again, that's the moment, the you know, the Alabama game at home. Uh, Back in, you know, back in uh, early January last year, you know, last month, two years ago, uh, we were able to get it done and it was uh, almost insurmountable, uh, but we found a way and um, it it can work as an example conversely as well. You know, we're we're up 15 with with six, seven minutes on the road and, and we can talk about, hey, you remember what we did to Alabama? I mean, anything can happen in college basketball. Uh, you've just got to stay the course and play one possession at a time and uh, and can control what you can control. Thinking about that one one possession, one game at a time mindset, obviously the focus is to be very much in the moment. So having said that, 
when you talk about, you know, three months from now, remembering that situation or, or going to that place mentally, is that something that, that you and, and your coaching staff will actively use? Or is it more just something subconsciously that you want the players to have there so that it triggers them? Yeah, no, it, it, it's something that we that we will probably use, you know, for our for our players. It's it's about you said it and I said it, you know, in the past minute, you know, being in the moment, staying in the moment, being where your feet are day in and day out. Um, y- your, your mind cannot wander to uh, what you're going to do after practice, uh, you know, during a game. Uh, you know, I wonder if I'll get the ball again. You know, if I catch it here in the next couple of minutes, this is what I might do with the ball. You've got to be exactly where you are. We talk about doing your job on a consistent basis. The game is uh, is broken down into hundreds of different jobs, and uh, and and really, it's a it's a split second game. And um, in in order for you to do your job to fulfill your responsibility uh, during that next play and having that next play mentality uh, consistently, you have to stay exactly where you are. And that's it. You can't get ahead of yourself. You can't be be behind yourself. Uh, you've got to lock in on what my job is right now, whether it's sprinting to the corner, uh, whether it's bending a ball screen, sprinting to a ball screen, setting it the right way, diving to the rim, wedging for an offensive rebound, being the floor balance guy, whatever it is, the game just moves on, um, incredibly quickly. And, you know, at, at certain times, probably media timeouts, halftime, uh, late game situations, we can draw upon uh, examples from earlier in the season where that we can use, you know, for, for encouragement or motivation for our guys. Mm-hmm. Looking at November and December, there were a lot of snap judgments made about this team externally during that non-conference slate and a lot of pressure coming from that, whether it's media, whether it's fans. When you looked at what you had and you knew what you had, what, if anything, surprised you over the first couple months? Not things that maybe surprised fans because they can only see so much. Has anything surprised you about your team in the first couple months? And how did you adjust to address that? Yeah, I think that early on, our carryover from practice to games offensively was a big surprise and a negative surprise. The way that uh, our level of selfishness increased in practice, you know, probably more than anything, I think that's the biggest surprise, uh, which carried over to, I think, the deer in headlights look, the bad body language, the uncertainty of ourselves individually and collectively, uh, inability to make shots and, pray, and, and play freely you know, with, with instincts overthinking stuff because we got off to such a bad start. Again, though, I think that stemmed from uh, the fact that we've got a bunch of pieces individually that are capable. And with such a young group, I don't think this group quite understood the importance of offensive connectivity and unselfishness and the extra pass and spacing uh, and the fact that it would be a lot easier if we could all do it together. You know, I think that everyone on this team with the crazy expectation thought that, well, we're going to be really good. And maybe I can get mine also. Just can't play effectively and efficiently doing that. You've got to play the right way. You've got to play clear-minded. We've got to get the shot and take the shot that the defense dictates. And certain nights, it, it could be Andrew getting 20 shots. And the next night, it might be him getting four shots. And he, and he still has to have the same exact mentality. And I'm just using him as an example, but it's it's really the whole team. And I think that we went into the season with some – with, with a level of I'm going to get mine along with us winning. And not only did we not get ours, but we weren't winning. 
And uh, so it's just kind of a rejuvenated focus of buy-in and of playing for each other, playing the right way. What did you find were the best ways to curb that? Was that more, was that in practice? Was that in film? Was that in game? How did you and your staff communicate that message once you identified that that was one of the issues? Individual meetings, team meetings, individual film sessions, team film sessions, group powwows, uh, small groups, large group meetings. <laughs> Everything. Uh, practices, games, media timeouts, <laughs> post game uh, talks. Pre-game talks, pre-practice talks, mid-practice. I could go on and on and on. <laughs> but and really, the message didn't change when we hit adversity. What changed was our guys' actions once we hit adversity. You know, sometimes that's what it takes for um, a change of behavior, for a guy to have to sit on the bench next to you, for a guy not to start, or for simply uh, for you to struggle from the field, uh, for someone to write something crazy about you or for the Gators to lose. You know, I think it's a combination of all those things uh, to where we're in a pretty good mindset right now. But, hey, we, we've won, what, three in a row. Uh, we go to Missouri, and we get out of character and take things for granted. You know, we'll, we'll be back in the losing column. And then it's another uh, opportunity to learn. But hopefully we can continue to learn while winning. Mm-hmm. And you sort of touched on it too with the, the youth of the team and specifically handling success because you've won a few games now, and, and guys are probably feeling a little bit better. I'm curious, you know that's something that happens. Everyone knows human nature, right? If you win, you're going to feel good. If you lose, you're going to feel bad. How do you overcome that as a staff, just the the human nature of feeling good and having that affect performance? We try to be as blunt as we can be and and, and hit things head on, um, address things that that you, I guess, foresee coming, Uh, try to put out fires before they're lit. You know, with our experience, uh, we've we've seen teams, especially young teams. And this is my first go around with a team this young. Obviously, we're incredibly young. And so I'm learning even with this group, but um, that that it's even harder than uh, than it would be if if you had mixed in a few more veterans with this crew. But, you know, you go to the the preseason and the the crazy hype and so on and so forth. um, And then we get off to the tough start and, you know, we had some agenda slash chemistry issues you somewhat figure those things out you go to charleston you play really well and then it became that next issue which which you just brought up how do you handle success as we're handed the trophy after we beat xavier in charleston uh you know what what can you do with you 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 try to again put that fire out before it's lit we started talking about handling success in that locker room guys now everyone's going to tell you guys that you got it figured out but but you don't none of us have it figured out we have a ways to go here are a lot of the things tonight, even though we just won our third game in a row, a lot of things we didn't do very well before everyone tells us how great we are. Calm down. We've got to get better tomorrow. Uh, now, all that said, they, I think a lot of times guys want to believe you, but they're 18, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And they think that they're bought into what you just talked about. But that phone is buzzing and, and positive noise just beats them down. And by the next time we played, I can't even remember the game, but we were awful. You know, I mean, I've been there before where uh, I'm 18 years old and my college coach stresses to me day in and day out how important. Just give you one example. You have to stay in a stance to be a good defender. I got you, coach. I feel you, coach. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. But no, no one really wants to sit in a stance because your thighs burn. Right. <laughs> so I'm going to sit in a stance as much as I have to. Uh, but when I can take a shortcut, I'm going to want to take a shortcut. It's the same type deal with the off the floor noise, you know, with chemistry. 
you know, the, the, these are these are young, young guys. And it's not even one adversity. It, with, for some of these guys, it's three or four or five adversities before certain stuff really sinks in, whether it's a defensive inefficiency, an offensive weakness, uh, you know, a, a mindset off the floor, uh, uh, the way that these guys take care of their bodies, uh, the amount of sleep they get. Sometimes it's two, three, four years before these guys, you know, before it really sinks in. You know, I've had college teammates that were much better pros than they were in college because that it finally clicked when they were 25, 28 years old. So um, everyone's on a different curve and everyone's process is different. Hmm. We talked earlier about Andrew and, and kind of this game he had against South Carolina. Um when you look at the growth of Andrew Nemhard in his year and a half that you've been with him now, where have you seen the biggest strides? Because, I mean, last year he wasn't taking step back threes like he was against Carolina. So it seems like he's made some significant leaps. Yeah, he spent a ton of time in the gym. Um, he's gotten so much better with um, being a quarterback and directing traffic, growing as a leader, becoming a, a high, high level defender. Um, where he's really settled in on, in all those areas, making winning plays, leading by example. He's really turned the page and and learned how to get his own uh, while maintaining those other areas. And, um, you know, for him, though, it, it, you know, it can't be when we go to Columbia, Missouri, it can't be I got to get 20 again. It's got to be I've got to lead us again and I've got to make the right play. And I, it, that might mean 12 assists. That might mean 18 shots. Um, it might mean both. Uh, it may mean neither. But, you know, I play a great floor game and I get five and five and I get the ball to the right guys because they're playing me as a scorer. And my teammates are hitting open shots. I don't turn it over and I and I defend and rebound at a high level and we win. Then so be it. You know, but he's uh, he's playing at a high level right now. We had a chance to talk to Scotty Lewis for this podcast and uh just blown away by his maturity and how remarkable he is off the court, let alone on the court. I'm singling him out just because I so recently spoke to him, but can you just speak to the value of having people like that in your program, not just great players, but really great people who are well-rounded as he is? It's something that we made a point to do when we first were blessed uh, with this opportunity here. My staff and I coming from Louisiana Tech, we knew that we could sell, you know, the prestige of this athletic department and, and this degree and that uh, we could cast a wide net in recruiting and narrow the thing down to our type of people. And we're still learning in terms of um, exactly what type of guy we want to bring in in terms of style of play. And, you know, things change year in and year out in terms of needs. Um, and these kids these days obviously are, are studying rosters and they all want opportunities early for playing time. Uh, all that said, all the factors that go into recruiting and evaluating, the one thing that I feel like my staff's done a great job of is evaluating character. It, you know, it, we, we've just we've narrowed it and targeted kids that we want to be around. One of my lines to parents is, yeah, I've got five kids and I want to recruit kids to this university that I want my kids to be around, my kids at home. When I have a team dinner, you know, I, I want um, – my young ones and, 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 and Coach Pinkins' three boys and so on and so forth, our support staff and their kids, I want them to enjoy being around our student-athletes and vice versa. And I want the really good players that we have in terms of uh, character, the, those really good kids, I want them to continue to recruit other really good kids that they want to be around. And we'll ask kids you know, on official visits, hey, what 
I think this guy's a really good guy. I think he'd fit, but I want I want your take. You know, especially our our leaders. You know, guys like Andrew Nemard, uh, Kerry Blackshear, Keontae Johnson. What did you think of him as a kid? Can you see yourself enjoying being around him and and being in the foxhole with him? And so our team, um, you know, now that you we've got it in a good place where we really enjoy 13, 14 guys. Um, their their evaluation of the next guys is uh, very important to us. Has uh, has Scotty taught you any of his dance moves yet? Are we still waiting on on that to happen? He could try all he wants, and I'm just going to turn a cheek and go do what I'm doing. He, <laughs> me that would be ugly. <laughs> um, in terms of some other guys that have been really important to to this uh, this recipe you've created here. Uh, in the post, the last few years, the options have been very limited. You just didn't have the bodies. And now this year, you've developed some really talented depth in that spot. Can you talk about Kerry, Omar, Dante, and how that's affected not just the, the way that you play, but the decisions that you make as a staff? Yeah, you know, we've gone from um, incredibly deep to pretty deep. It's still by far the deepest we've been at the five. Unfortunate with Gorjot Gak. Um, it just, uh, it just, it didn't work and we wish him the best. Obviously he's had, he just had a really tough go and Johnny Boone who did before him, you know, so we, we've had our, uh, adversity in the front court. Um, and now, as you mentioned, you know, we've got, uh, one of the best post players in our league and, and in the country and Kerry Blackshear, our two freshman bigs are really talented and they're very different. And Omar Payne is probably just a little bit ahead of Jason right now, but Jason's got a really high ceiling. Um, and, and we've got a ton to work with there. Both of these guys have worked and developed and, uh, and they're learning under Kerry and our fourth guy, Dante Bassett, who plays as hard as anybody on our team, um, you know, from a enthusiasm, effort, physicality standpoint, he brings us a lot that doesn't still show up in the stat sheet, uh, winning plays uh, that don't show up. And, um, you know, we're, we're in a pretty good place there. we got to continue to improve, of course. Final question for you. The win at South Carolina was your 200th as a head coach, and you seemed as shocked as anyone when that was brought to your attention at the press conference. But you then told a story about how you sort of just stumbled into this in the first place. So I was hoping you could share that with us and what it means to be where you are now, considering that's how you started. Yeah, I mean, God's honest truth, I, I, I had no idea. Um, not, you know, not, not that I should have had an idea. It really, it really doesn't matter all that much, it, <laughs> but it, it, you know, it's just funny. I, I just see myself as, um, it seems like just yesterday I, that I was just getting into it. I still see myself as a, as a young coach and we've been very fortunate to have really good players, of course, at Louisiana tech. And that's the reason that we're here at Florida because of the level of talent that, uh, that we had and uh, the number of games that we won there. And so, I'll always be so grateful for the opportunity that my family and I have here in Gainesville and my staff and I have here in Gainesville um, and, and most thankful toward the administration and the players that we had at Louisiana Tech. Uh, but, yeah, just briefly, um, I'll never forget it. Uh, I was on a, uh, on a team bus after an Ole Miss game and I just started thinking about the future. It was my senior year and you start getting senioritis and freaking out about, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do next year? Right. You know, people talk about the ball is going to stop bouncing. And when you're 18, 19, 20, you say, well, it's, it's never going to stop bouncing because I'm going to be a 15-year NBA guy, right? Um, at that point, I realized that getting five a game my senior year, that probably wasn't going to happen. I did try to play for a little bit uh, to, to little avail. Uh, but at that point, I said on that bus ride, I, I love the game, and I have I've, I don't know what else I would do. I just want to stay around. It would It wouldn't be working to me. And everything else just seemed like, my goodness, the nine to five stuff. Um, I, I don't even know if I'd be capable 
you know. Um, and and again, I love hoops. So yeah, it was just a matter of getting in. And and when I got in as an assistant at Jacksonville State, you know, making uh, not very much. I I don't want to. I shouldn't repeat it. But, uh, <laughs> making not very much money and um, not knowing what the heck I was doing at 23 years old. I thought I made it. I mean, that was it. <laughs> Life was good. And then it was what four years later I got called back to my alma mater at Ole Miss as an assistant coach at 27, and I thought I hit the lottery. I mean, my goodness, we're back in uh, – I'm, I'm married to my college sweetheart, and we're living in Oxford where we went to school and met and dated, and that was it. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden you get an opportunity at Louisiana Tech five years later. I, I never got into this saying, I got to be a head coach. I just didn't. You get an opportunity, you take it, you say yes. Um, again, we had a great run. Never in a million years would I have imagined I'd be the head coach of Florida. So I consider myself as blessed as anybody on the planet. Well, congratulations on win 200, but on something I know is more important to you, congratulations on being 2-0 and in the SEC, and best luck to you guys moving forward. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. While basketball was moving to center stage in Gator Nation, football was reluctant to relinquish the spotlight, basking in the citrus-soaked glory of their victory in the Orange Bowl. So to open our first roundtable of the new year, we asked Scott and Chris to assess the impact of the exclamation point added to the end of the 2019 season. You know, they were heavily favored in that game. It was a pretty good game. We saw how good Bryce Perkins uh, was, uh, what all the hype was about him. But, you know, the Gators did what they they should have done. Uh, they took care of an ACC team uh, that wasn't as talented as they are. And more importantly, just that one game. And obviously, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, some tangible proof uh, of improvement in Dan Mullen's second year. They went from 10 wins to 11, second straight New Year's Six Bowl. And it just kept that momentum that they had built since Mullen's arrival. And you've already seen it kind of play out on the recruiting trail. It's amazing how that works. Uh, you have a couple of good seasons back to back and suddenly – more players want to come and play for you. And I think that's uh, what Dan Mullen's been able to do in his uh, two years here. And the one thing that they wanted to get out of that Orange Bowl is to make sure they didn't stub their toe and have anything uh, kind of, uh, I guess, stall that momentum going into the offseason. And obviously National Signing Day in early February is the next big date on the calendar for the Gators. Uh, you know, they got most of their class already signed during the early signing period. But there's still spots for a uh, you know half a dozen or uh, or more players, and and they're in the running for uh, some good high school players, uh, possibly some transfers. Uh, so th- again, they they took care of what they needed to do to make sure that they uh, present a program that's on the rise, uh, that's really turned the corner under Mullen uh, going into the off season, and not having to talk about oh, but they lost to Virginia. I think to play on the the national stage in a destination bowl game and to um, you know put up the kind of numbers Florida put up uh, for a national TV audience, just you know, to Scott's point, I mean, it just not that the brand needed to be validated, but I think the return of the brand, I think um, there's something to be said for that. I mean, when Michael P. Ryan, his last game went out with a bang, boy, uh, the Gators we've been talking all year about that couldn't run the ball. Well, they ran the ball that night. Second most yards rushing uh, for the season. Yeah. Uh, certainly the most against a, uh, a high major opponent. Um, talking X and O's in football now, but I mean, defense got off to something of a slow start. I think Bryce Perkins had them on their heels a little bit. 
the game was close early on, but once that pass rush got a little bit of rhythm and uh, defensive coordinator Todd Grantham uh, made some adjustments, um, that was some exciting football for Florida football fans. And like like we said, going into that game, the vibe of the fan base is altogether different. You know, when you can exit a season with a victory in a bowl game, certainly in an Orange Bowl game. So to Scott's point, a lot of momentum. Uh, a lot of euphoria, 11 win season for just the eighth time in school history. Mullen is now 21 and five in his two seasons. And I mean, there's just a, a lot of things to point to. And uh, one thing we don't have to point to is uh, any kind of stuff that's going on with the Dallas Cowboys, because uh, that was shot down uh, quick enough in the process where it wasn't an issue. Dan Mullen took a nice bow at the Florida Gator basketball game against Alabama over the weekend. It's on to the offseason with, with the wind at your back, if you will, because uh, this is this is a program on the rise. Hell, I saw, I mean, you're, this is a team that has a good chance uh, with, with the guys that are returning. And again, there's only been one player who says he's leaving. That's C.J. Henderson, and we understand why he's going. This team has, is going gonna, is, is gonna to be much talked about, uh, obviously, during the offseason and uh, will be mentioned very prominently and seated very high when the uh, preseason polls come out. You know, it's always fun in the aftermath of these things to uh, name some MVPs. And, and I want to say last year, it might have been unanimous. It probably will be again. But still, just to, to go through the exercise, uh, I'm curious for each of you, offensive and defensive MVPs of the season for Florida. I'm going to guess that Chris is going to choose Kyle Trask on offense and John Grenard on defense. Those are the two players I'm going with. You look at my my little notes here. You, you <laughs> cheat your cupping. You, you're cheating on my notes. <laughs> I mean, I, I think uh, most fans, I would hope, maybe would lean along these lines. I mean, let's just start with the obvious Trask. Uh, anytime, uh, you know, not only is he the Gator MVP, I mean, he he's one of the best stories in college football this year. Uh, we've, uh, we've talked to talk about his role uh, on this team and the unlikelihood of his story going from a guy who just sat and waited his turn as all these other quarterbacks came through the program. And, you know, we can reel off some of their names. Uh, Luke Del Rio, who I just saw now has been hired by the Washington Redskins, Chris's favorite team. Going to work with his dad up there in some capacity. Wow. Obviously Malik Zaire, who's I think doing some TV here and there. Austin Appleby, uh, last check, I saw he was uh, with Jim McElwain, uh staff up at Central Michigan. And then, of course, Felipe Franks, who beat him out over and over. Uh, Emory Jones, who is now his backup. So, I mean, there's been all these other guys, and Kyle Trask was kind of an afterthought uh, through much of it. But once Felipe Franks went down in that Kentucky game and, and Kyle Trask came in, he rewrote the story of uh, the 2019 Gators that obviously took on the, to, the leading role, uh, had a tremendous season. The offense changed with him at, uh, at the control. Uh, but you know what? He did whatever uh, they asked him to do and he did it successfully most of the year. I think he ended up with what? I think he had 24 touchdowns and six interceptions going into the, uh, the orange bowl. And, uh, you know, it, it was funny because in that game fans were kind of, getting after him a little early in the game, but then he ends up throwing for 305 yards, uh, the 11th all-time best performance in Orange Bowl history, uh, and he led his team to a win. And, you know, we saw Emory Jones uh, summon that game too, and that's a very nice combination to have going into next season. And really the quarterback position at Florida to me is 
probably the best it's been uh, going into this decade is it as it's been since the end of the 2000s when uh, you had Tebow in that group. So uh, good job by uh, Kyle Trask, good job by Dan Mullen and the offensive staff. And, and since I've uh, talked about him a lot, I'll let Chris talk more about his. Well, I mean, I said before, if John Grenard hadn't gotten hurt, he might have been the FCC Defensive Player of the Year, the way he was playing. And he certainly uh, had an excellent bowl game, was in the backfield a lot, and uh, uh, <laughs> was tremendous after the game on the post-game podium speaking to his you know one season with Florida and how much it meant to him and the conga line of guys up there P Ryan Van Jefferson uh Grenard and then there was Trask uh, all like upperclassmen had some nice things to say about their time here at Florida um two of those guys Van Jefferson and Grenard being transfers Van from Ole Miss and obviously Jonathan from uh, from Louisville but both those guys left a mark. Both those guys are going to be remembered as uh, footprint guys for what Dan Mullen talks about, Gator Standard. John Grenard, I think, personified the relentless effort slogan that they throw around around here. So I think those, the, your question, I think, is Scott and I obviously answered it the same. I think it's an easy answers. Um, I don't know. Those would have been my two answers if you had asked me way back in September or excuse me, August before the Gators played Miami. But uh, those are two runaway guys. And uh, I would think uh, Gator Nation is indebted to those guys to helping uh, redirect the ship for Dan Mullen. So um, good for them. One final thing on Grenard that I found funny was obviously that relentless effort Chris talked about. He does, he is the poster boy for that. But even in the Orange Bowl, he had a play where he walked out with an ankle hobbling. And I saw a couple of guys on Twitter. Well, you know, that's probably all we're going to see of Grenard because, uh, you know, the ankle, he's got no reason to play. <laughs> Two plays later, he's back. Right. It just sums up. That's tremendous. Yeah. And that's uh, that that does say a lot about. I mean, I love the fact that, I mean, Mullen got this stuff out of the way way back when. I think we talked about this two weeks ago or whatever. But uh, if anyone was going to leave or didn't want to play in the bowl game, step up now. Let's let's get it out of the way so we can move on. One guy did. Good for him. Good luck to C.J. Henderson. Uh, And after that, it was all get ready for Virginia. And that's taking control of your locker room, prioritizing a game that people say, okay, it's a bowl game. It's a luxury game. It meant a lot to those guys in the locker room. Obviously, it meant a lot to a guy like John Grenard. And obviously, his uh, defensive mates uh, uh, took a cue from him and played to that same uh, relentless effort. So that was uh, that was how something we see in a really cool anecdote Scott just provided there. One final note on uh, on next year's team, and we'll of course be talking more about that as we move into spring ball. But uh, Dan Mullen's been something of a of a wizard when it comes to the transfer portal. Seems to always get the right pieces he needs, and you know, last year needed a needed a strong end. Got John Grenard. Uh, this year, I think after looking at the class, a lot of people said, well, Florida's not really strong at the running back spot. So goes out and gets one of the top running backs in the country through the transfer portal. Uh, Scott, tell us about the addition of Lorenzo Lingard and what that could mean for Florida in the backfield next year. It's too early, I think, to know for next year because, you know, he's another guy that has the got to go through the process. I'm sure they'll try to find a waiver, whether or not it's uh, – accepted or passed by the incident away is a whole nother issue. You saw that play out this season with Brenton Cox Jr. But regardless of whether he plays in 2020 or has to wait until 2021, uh, that's a nice addition to the program. Uh, this guy was recruited by a lot of people coming out of Orange City High. Central Florida obviously signed with Miami. 
they had some experience in the backfield, so they can get on the field a lot and uh, wait his turn and for whatever reason decide to transfer. And it's kind of what we talked about earlier, Adam. You know, when the Florida's statement the last two seasons under Mullen, I mean, they're clearly the program in the state of Florida that is, I think, in, in the best uh, footing right now. And uh, other players are seeing that. So with the transfer portal being what it is, you know, if a player uh, comes into a program and doesn't like how it maybe shakes out in his first year, he has options. And Lorenzo Lingard has decided that he likes Florida and Florida liked him. Uh, he instantly gives him, uh, you know, another five-star player on the roster, him and Britton Cox Jr. And you're talking about Dan Mullen's proficiency at the uh, using the transfer portal. Those are the only two five-stars players on the roster as of this moment, uh, both through the transfer portal. So that's smart use of, uh, of you know, going after uh, players in the portal because I still think there's always going to be an element of guesswork or a risk there because you're like, okay, well, why did this go to, guy go to Miami for one year? But look how it worked out for, uh, for Trayvon Grimes, for Van Jefferson, for John Grenard. So they're obviously doing some of their homework there on what kind of players they're taking into the program. And, you know, I don't, I haven't met Lorenzo Lagarde yet. I don't know much about him, but just by looking at what he did in high school, looking at his physical tools, you can see why he was so highly regarded. And, you know, with the loss of LaMichael Pirine and obviously Damian Pierce, Malik Davis, Iverson Clement, they're back uh, for 2020. But if you do add this guy in for this season, uh, that's a very nice addition. And if you have to wait until 2021, still a nice piece of the puzzle to have. So I can see why Gator fans got pretty excited at the news this week. Eligibility is so confusing these days. What do we know at the moment about Cox and about Lingard in terms of what their classification will be and how many years they could potentially play for Florida? Well, you know, it's, I mean, it's a good question. Like, I mean, you just don't know until the NCAA boy makes their final decision. I mean, you know, you could look at this Lingard guy. Technically, I guess you could count this past season as a redshirt season at Miami. So he signs with the Gators, and he could have four years here. But uh, it's uh, this is early in the process, Adam. I mean, it's all speculation at this point. Cox, the same way. I mean, I don't know if he's going to have three years of Florida. I don't know if he's going to have four years. Regardless, the NCAA, it's uh, the way the system is working now. You see it every week. Coaches are lobbying for guys because other guys at other schools in similar situations got cleared right away to play. Cox had to sit out at Florida last year. So if I knew the answer to that question, I would definitely be playing the lottery a lot more than maybe once or twice a year. <laughs> so there's a lot of unknowns there. Hopefully we'll get some more clarification in the uh, the coming weeks and months. Um, moving on to basketball, Chris, it's been a roller coaster. There's no question about it as you look through November and December. And we talked to Mike White about that earlier in this podcast. But, you know, once you get to the SEC, in a lot of ways, it is that clean slate. And Florida's taken an interesting route to get to 2 0. But nonetheless, they have won a couple games and they've got some momentum. What have you seen that's helped turn that tide for them recently? Uh, the ball going in the basket. Pretty. Uh... <laughs> I'm not privy to your uh, Mike White conversation, but uh, I imagine he probably said something that was uh, similar to that effect. But the struggles of the offense early on, particularly shooting ball, um, flow, rhythm, uh, trying to uh, rotate a bunch of young players into a into a system and trying to get them to 
be where they're supposed to be at times. I mean, obviously it, it didn't look good at times. They had to change. And um, I want to say four games in the season, they, they went to a different structure on offense. That was, uh, that was, that was a little more, I say structure, they went to a different philosophy and system that was more structured. And guys are kind of uh, uh, falling into a little bit better, but uh, none more so than obviously, obviously than Andrew Nemhart. Um, he didn't look in sync at times early in the season. That's an understatement, I think. But what he did against Alabama, both uh, in control and the ball, with the ball, attacking, uh, shooting. Um, now what he's been doing, uh, what he did, excuse me, uh, uh, Tuesday night at South Carolina, his first double-double of his career. He had 25 against Alabama. Uh, he had That was a career-high uh, point total for him in that double-overtime uh, comeback. He had 21 points and 10 assists at South Carolina. Uh, you know, more guys getting involved. Uh, he's a great passer. Obviously he's, he's finding open guys and Keontae Johnson is really playing well off him. Uh, those two guys, when they are in downhill mode and playing aggressive, this is a very good team, uh, very good offense. And uh, I think I mentioned in my, my game story, I want to say the last, uh, Florida's won four of the last five. And in those with the one outlier, of course, being the 62, 65 loss at sunrise, but, in their four wins uh, during that stretch, they've scored 83, 102, 104, and then 81. Uh, is Alabama going to be a great team down the line? You know, that remains to be seen. They certainly have a unique uh, style of play that's going to be difficult to prepare for. And I think over the course of uh, 50 minutes, uh, their style may have backfired on them a little bit, playing against Florida's defense, having to get up and down the court the way they have. They certainly didn't shoot the ball late in the game like they did early in the game. And then going on the road and playing South Carolina, I mean, you, you play who's on your schedule. Florida's 2-0 in SEC play. Kentucky's 2-0 in SEC play. That, that's where the teams stand right now. Uh, they go to Missouri this weekend. Uh, Missouri's 0-2 in SEC play. Florida will be favored at that game. It'll still be a hard game. So uh, uh, things are a lot better. I think the narrative, uh, how the product, what the product looks like is a lot better than maybe it was a, a couple weeks ago. But Mike White's been saying for months, this is a work in progress. A lot of fans didn't want to hear it. Uh, I think uh, what we've seen the last couple of weeks shows that uh, the guy kind of knows what he's talking about when it comes to uh, developing a team over the course of a season. He, he knows his team better than anybody else, and they're finding the right buttons to push, I think, right now. And it's uh, guys like Scotty Lewis and Omar Payne, and even Quez Glover to a little bit uh, stepped up. Uh, they're just they're just figuring some things out a little more, and that's gonna that needs to continue happening. I don't I don't see a reason why it won't. You talked about Andrew Nemhard and, and his play, and I think that was maybe what was most uh, surprising to me, and especially in the South Carolina game, he almost seemed to not just take a step in terms of what he's capable of doing, but what he wants to do and the authority he can take over situations when it comes to just scoring the basketball. I mean, the step back threes, some of the big time shots he hit. Do you see that as, is that an exception or is that going to be the rule going forward or the kind of player he's going to continue becoming? Something that he said after the game, um, he said that the, the way South Carolina was defending, they were, they, they were denying a lot of guys and kind of daring him to do that. Maybe thinking, you know, he might do that against Alabama with the way they play, but they're not going to do that. He's not going to do that against the way we play. And he did. Uh, in the last two games against two teams that play a completely different style. He's got he's 16 of 23 from the floor. He's 4 of 10 from three. He's 10 of 12 from the free throw line. He's getting there and making them. And that's a 23-point average. over. And he's averaged 39 minutes. I mean, his aggressiveness has been a game changer. And also a recognizing one to facilitate. And there, there was one sequence, uh, um, I want to say in the second half, where Florida tried to rush the ball in transition, which I know a lot of people want to see them play faster. 
I just don't think they're that good playing in transition. Uh, uh, Andrew Nemar is not a fast player. Terry Blackshear is not a fast player. Those are your two best players. You want them in the half court surveying what the defense is doing. You want to play through Kerry Blackshear, whether that's in the low post or the high post. He's a, he commands attention at all times. And when he does command attention, there's a lot of, there's a great chance he's going to get to the free throw line. I mean, he only played, played two minutes in the first half, didn't score, didn't get a rebound. In the second half, he had 10 free throws. Uh, I mean, he, he, he is a really, really good basketball player who is, who is uh, going to impact this league over the course of the next uh, 16 games. Um, uh, Neymar is just getting a feel for who his team is, what his team's strengths are. I said I mentioned Keontae Johnson. When he gets the ball in the wing or he gets the ball at the, at the top of the key and he sees just a little bit of alley, he can get there, man. I, I, I sit around a lot of NBA scouts. They're watching him. They're watching how he attacks. They're watching how he uses his length to get offensive rebounds and finish around the rim. And um, and he's just getting – he's become a better defender. He has worked on his motor, which is something that the coaches have uh, just talked to him a lot about and something that, that he didn't come here as a particularly hard-playing player. And there's times where earlier in the season, specifically at Butler, that, that they got on him about not, not maxing out when he's on the floor. Well, maybe he's starting to figure some things out himself because, uh, you know, 19 points, eight rebounds. He's got uh, three double doubles already this season. Um, I think he has I think it's five games with at least 19 points. I think he only had three last year. So uh, uh, good for him because good for him means uh, good for the Gators. So, you know, trending in a positive direction. But um, I mentioned the Missouri game this weekend. Florida has Ole Miss coming in uh, next Tuesday night. You know, those are very winnable games. I think the games after that, though, ha, ha, ha. I think there's a stretch of it's uh, it's LSU. It's uh, I think that's a road game. It's a home game against Auburn. Uh, a couple games after that is against the top 10 uh, SEC uh, ch- uh, Big 12 Challenge game against Baylor. So um, some, some good tests coming up, but you take nothing for granted in SEC play. So we'll see what happens for basketball. Again, big games come up, as, as Chris just noted. But I want to turn our attention out of the PAT. Uh, this past weekend, one of the, the most entertaining weekends in the NFL I've seen in, in a very long time. Four playoff games, all four down to the wire, and three of them the road team winning. And the one that didn't was the Buffalo Bills. And we could talk about the Bills in the 90s, but people know that already. The part that really stood out to me, and, and I think most people, was the Patriots losing at home to the Titans and what it could mean for the end of the dynasty. If Brady is not there, if, if we've come to the end of that road that's lasted, gosh, almost 20 years of dominance for them. And I thought about this because I saw a few people have this sentiment that sure, everyone loves to hate the Patriots, but it won't be as fun if you don't have that villain there to always lord over everyone, right? Without Darth Vader, Star Wars isn't quite as interesting. I'm curious of what you guys think about that. Is the end of the Patriots dynasty, if that is truly where we are, is that good or bad for the NFL? Well, if you're if we're assuming that the ba- Brady Belichick era is over, uh, is that good for the NFL? Uh, I think it can be. I mean, I think fans uh, always love new teams, new stars. Obviously, Lamar Jackson and the Ravens are the hot story this year. I personally. As a kind of casual NFL observer, I, I'm like everybody else. I've kind of despised the Patriots for a while. But you know what? I found myself rooting for them in the last couple of years in the playoffs because I love underdogs. And 
anytime you got a 40 year old guy playing a quarterback, it's still the best guy in the game. I'm rooting for that guy. I don't care if it's Tom Brady. I would have rooted for that guy. No, I've never hated any team in NFL or franchise more than I hated the Steelers when I was younger in the 70s when they had Bradshaw and all those guys. I was a Cowboys fan. And they beat us a couple of times. And then it was the Redskins who I couldn't stand. Joe Gibbs and Joe Theismann, John Riggins. Uh, but I, none of those were dynasty franchises as much as the Patriots, except to me, the Steelers of the 70s, the 49ers of the 80s, and I guess the Cowboys in the 90s. You know, the Cowboys came back. And then you look really since the 2000s, it's been the Patriots. They uh, they kind of monopolized two decades instead of one. So it's going to be an adjustment for NFL, for fans, uh, if it is over. Is it a good or bad? Uh, the NFL will survive. The NFL is going to be fine. Uh, ultimately, though, I do think it's always good when there is a franchise that everybody can hate except the fans of those teams. Well, I, I don't think I like dynasties because I've never had a team that was one. <laughs> uh, Scott mentioned the, the Redskins. Uh, they had a chance. Uh, they were in the Super Bowl for a second straight year, and that 1983 team set the NFL record for uh, most points in a season. It set a record for the most for the greatest, like the most takeaways. I think I think there were plus 46 or some ridiculous number like that, and they just killed everybody that year until uh, the Raiders killed them in the Super Bowl in Tampa, which I happened to witness. So, the um, yes, the Hogs, yes, yes. But um, I would probably uh, like dynasties better if I ever experienced one at. One as a fan, I uh, I imagine if I'm if I'm Boston right now, I'm in a jar a little bit. Uh, I mean, you you Braves fans, you know all about dynasties, right? Let's no, you won all I those championships. Yeah. I mean, you're in the playoffs like a hundred years in a row, and you won a bunch of oh, oh that's right, very yeah. unsuccessful oh, dynasties. Yeah. You you got one right, yeah. one out of uh, right one out of fourteen, one out of fourteen. Okay, and then you had and, and Adam, you you guys you guys had a chance to uh, to stop the Patriots or to at least uh, put a dent in the Patriots dynasty when the Falcons were in the Super Bowl, right? Yes, thank you for reminding me today. Yep, yep. yep. But uh, is 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 it good for? I mean, Tom Brady's good for the league. Uh, he's the greatest. I've I've said this recently. I for years I I tried to resist and uh, you know I said I saw Joe Montana. Joe Montana's the best quarterback ever. Well, Tom Brady is the best quarterback in NFL history just because. Uh, he didn't have the weapons that Joe Montana had and did it for one the way they did without great wide receivers and just continue. The the, the excellence has been remarkable. Um, but I'm with Scott. I'm not saying the guy the guy said he's not retiring uh, or he doesn't think he's going to retire. Uh, if they come back, I'm not I'm not betting against him not to win the division. Um, ESPN loves dynasties because it's good. Uh, it's good fodder for their uh, for their talk shows and what have you. And. Uh, everyone likes the the enemy, like you say. Everyone likes uh, to pull against Darth Vader, but I'm not ready to shut the shut the book on this one just yet. Um, and I don't know who the next dynasty would be, but uh, uh, in in the interim, I would still say the Patriots still have their their dynasty intact, and still some things uh, start breaking apart uh, with a little more uh, a little more definitively. Quick postscript, because it's also related to dynasties and one that we're seeing developing in college. I need a national championship pick from each of you and a reason why in eh, 20 words or less. Go Tigers, the LSU version, because I like Coach O. That was definitely less than 20 words. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go the other way and go Clemson because everyone thinks it's LSU here. Let's go the other way from Scott. All right, well, excellent. Since we're, and let's do this on the record. Make your prediction and a score 
And whoever gets closest, the other guys have to bomb lunch one day whenever we're all three. So I'm going LSU, and it's going to be a crazy game. I got a 51-44 regulation. I hate picking scores because you can be so wrong on that. Right? Well, so it's yeah. like, huh? Chris does not want to be wrong. <laughs> Clemson, 31-27. to 27. Chris, so we were talking about full game at halftime. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, I got to break this tie now. I'm going to go LSU 35-24, a little bit lower scoring than some people think. It always does tend to go that way. Next week, we'll, uh, we'll tabulate the results. We'll find out who's on the hook for that future lunch. Um, but for the, for the time being, thank you guys as always. Make sure to check out their content at FloridaGators.com. Chris is all over basketball, at GatorsChris on Twitter. And Scott is going to be at Gymnastics, their opener on Friday. So follow him for all of that. And then uh, we'll reconvene next week and discuss it all. Guys, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news in the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.